When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Wolfgang Muller, professor of history at Fordham University, to discuss his new book, Marriage Litigation in the Western Church, 1215 to 1517, out with Cambridge University Press in 2021. Hello, Wolfgang, and how are you today? Hi, Jana, I'm good, um, and uh, grateful that you uh, invited me to this uh, event. Uh, that's good. That's nice to hear, um, because I think a lot of people feel, I mean, maybe some trepidation or even vague annoyance when I ask them to interview with me. So good. No, no. Uh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, you're back in New York? Yes. Um, I I was away in Miami uh, just uh, uh, last week, uh, and I'm back in New York, in that sense, literally. Back into a much uh, colder climate. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the wild and exciting life of a medievalist. I'm not surprised you're in Miami. I, <laughs> that's what I expect. All right. So, Wolfgang, our first task is to place this work in your intellectual history, right? So, you have your first book, Guccio, The Life Works and Thoughts of a 12th Century Jurist, uh, Catholic University of America Press, 1994, which I assume grows out of your dissertation. Yes. Yes. And then uh, how, you're going to, I'm sorry, in advance, die Artreibung, Artreibung, yeah. Excellent. Uh, I know it's not. Or uh, Abortion, the Origins of a Crime, 1140 to 1650, Baulau, 2000, which I'm guessing is the product of your habilitation. Yes. Which is this bizarre torture ritual that German universities, German academics do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like a second doctorate that is uh, supposed to have not too much overlap with the first doctorate and qualifies you for a position uh, as professor at, at, the, at German universities. Um, it, it qualifies you. It doesn't mean you get such a position. It's a different ball game. Yeah, excellent. Okay, and then um, a very different book, despite the title, "The Criminalization of Abortion in the West: Its Origins in Medieval Law," which is Cornell 2012. And so now, marriage litigation in the West. Now, when at first glance, this might seem a bit all over jurist to abortion seems like a jump and then marriage but there's this very clear thread running through which is the law yeah so i mean is it fair to characterize you as a legal historian yes um yeah i would do that too a legal historian is good um it's of course uh, it's a different uh, it's a difficult field in many ways because it's populated by historians and lawyers 
And um, while from the outside, it may often appear as if uh, they were just working harmoniously and strenuously together uh, as legal historians. In, in fact, the approaches are so different that I hesitate to call lawyers historians and they uh, definitely hesitate to, uh, to assume that legal historians with historical training actually get the law right. Um, so it's a big field with very different people in it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but if you do medieval studies often works together as well. And that means, I mean, you're talking to art historians then and literary criticism people. So there's a, it's an interesting kind of world academics all the way. So then how did you come to study marriage litigation? What, what made you decide to do this book? Yeah, it's a very long, uh, the answer could be long. Um, it starts with Hugo which is my first book. Um, I, my, my original training um, was very conservative, you might say. It's uh, canon law, the, the history of medieval church law, the way it used to be done uh, at least into the 1990s. I still got the old training, which was one that's very much focused on legal history of church law. And that um, legal history um, is mainly legal theory and the origins of uh, the theory of church law in the 12th century. Very explosively, we have um, church law developing a coherent theory, not um, right after the birth of Jesus Christ, but uh, in fact, a thousand years later in the 12th century, this is getting underway. And within a few generations, basically canon law, uh, in the way it's still practiced by the papal church today, was was uh, shaped and formulated by lawyers, first generations of teachers at law schools, lawyers like Hugucho, about whom I wrote my dissertation. And so the training was very uh, theoretical. Uh, and the next step then uh, in connection with the habilitation that you mentioned was that I had to branch out, do something different. And the decision was to get into um, practice uh, and to figure out how the theory that these church lawyers of the 12th century had formulated, how it fared in uh, late medieval practice. So I looked at very different records. And what I found in those records um, was in many ways um, compatible with the theory. So you could recognize the theory in the practice, but there were very many cases that um, were dealt with in a way that theory didn't address at all, you know, so that the rest is history, you could say, because this is really um, <laughs> a lifetime later. Um, I, um, yeah, find myself as someone who has never really moved beyond that question, the question of why is it that so many cases that church courts dealt with in practice in the later Middle Ages uh, have no reflection in the theory? Um, and yet these cases and their treatment uh, look very uniform. You know, they are treated in the same way across all of Western Europe, in all the churches. But how, uh, how do we get to this uniformity? <laughs> you know, and, and why is none of this reflected in, in the theory? Uh, these are the questions that I had. And then I just try to answer them first in the field of uh for, for criminal law, what you might call criminal law, and eventually civil law. 
criminal law, uh, that's the context in which I focused on abortion. That's the book of 2012. And now I'm happy to report that I was also finishing, able to finish the book on on uh, civil law. Uh, and there the big focus is marriage. Um, and while abortion was a focus that was just my focus, uh, it's not that you had a lot of historiography on that issue uh, before my book. Uh, with marriage, it's all different. Uh, marriage is a huge topic uh, and has been for the longest time in historiography, anglophone and not anglophone. So uh, there I'm in the middle and surrounded by colleagues who themselves have a lot to say uh, about marriage and the treatment of marriage in courts and church courts. So, I mean, this is uh, this is a good question, right? There's been a lot of work on marriage in the past. So tell me how your book fits into the historiography, which is what we call the surrounding, the history of the history that we do. That's what we call our surrounding scholarship. Um, and what do you contribute to our understanding to the of the history of marriage here that's unique? First of all, the book has the title Marriage Litigation in the Western Church. Um, and that uh, title resonates, another title, uh, uh, in 1974, um, Richard Helmholtz uh, wrote a book um, with the title Marriage Litigation in Medieval England. And so I'm, I'm in conversation with this book um, more than anything else. And once you are in conversation with that book, you are in many ways uh, in conversation with the way um, marriage litigation and medieval marriage has been treated so far in the historiography, because his book is like a classic and uh, the one everyone has read and has been inspired by. I would say for better and for worse, um, not in the sense that I'm not a great fan of um, Richard Helmholtz's book. I actually am. Uh, I think it's a great book, but um, perhaps more than he intended, others have followed him and his model of dealing with marriage so much um, that they have... Um, neglected aspects that his book doesn't treat you know that you can't can't really blame him for that <laughs> um, but um, I must say that Richard Helmholtz did his book on marriage litigation of 1974 as um, a lawyer lawyer a trained lawyer someone teaching at law school and he has made it since very clear that he um looks at marriage litigation like a modern lawyer. So he's looking for the way um, uh, judicial proceedings uh, having to do with uh, marriage operated. And um, that's a limitation uh, that I think has not been recognized very much before my book, um, because I say, yes, uh, judicial proceedings concerning marriage cases did happen in the later Middle Ages, and uh, Richard Helmholtz's book is wonderful uh, in tracking um, and formulating, giving us the typology of cases that that reached the church courts in the later Middle Ages. Um, but he has not dealt with the many cases that were not in the form of judicial proceedings, but uh, followed other proceedings. A penitential, as I call them, penitential proceedings. There is public penance um, in the late medieval courts, and most cases at least initiated um, by following a penitential model, a non-judicial model. 
And that has not been discussed, for all I know, in any book on marriage that has been published since 1974. In that sense, I claim to have done something new. And um, I apologize if this sounds like a minor step forward. Um, I don't think it is. Uh, penitential proceedings, they don't exist in the Western church anymore, um, but they loomed hugely and large in the late medieval uh, um, period. And they affected average people um, uh, in, the, in the thousands, if not millions, over three centuries. So this is not a small thing. No, it's not a small thing, and it also rounds out. It allows us a little. It allows us um, by this larger focus to really think about the process of how how people are working with marriage and working, and not just about marriage, right? How people are working with church law on a very much lived basis, which is not what you're going to find simply through laws and proceedings. There, yes. Um... Well, you can also read the book differently. You can also uh, just look at its coverage. You can say geographically, it's a book that is um, reaching much farther than books before. I mean, you have Richard Helmholtz again, his marriage litigation in medieval England uh, that's focused on England. Other books have often focused on um, either North or South. Uh, so France and England have been studied extensively together. Um, and then there is another branch more recent of books on Italy. Um, and there also have been books on southern Germany. Um, and they all kind of were in their own space and had their geographical focus. And I try to show that, and this is relevant for practice, um, that if you look at all of these regions uh, next to each other, you realize that... Um, demand for church jurisdiction in connection with marriage was uh, dramatically different. You know, that uh, in Southern Europe, um, nobody went to church in order to um, find out whether he's uh, or she is uh, legitimately married or not. Um, people rather went to the notary. And in Northern Europe, um, everyone went to uh, the church courts. Uh, and this, of course, is a big difference, right? And you start wondering, next question, why is there such a big difference? A recourse massive in the north um, when it comes to church courts and very little recourse in the south. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second, but I want to, um, I want to sit here on this because in the medieval period, this is appropriate when you're talking about the church, right? This is to look at continental Europe as a in the whole you this is a different situation in 1650 we have we have different churches right but in although I mean you could still benefit from it certainly but this is uh, very much looking at the way the universal church is handled in these three different regions and coming up with finding massive differences again like really informs a much bigger picture as well but just yes um yeah I don't know um it's if, if you look in the later Middle Ages, and I think this is mainly a, a late medieval phenomenon starting somehow in the 12th century with uh, that church law that becomes uniform and coherent, um, uh, you are looking at indeed a church that has um, a, a reach across what we today call Western Europe. Um, and it's most manifest in 
church courts and the proceedings and procedures they use. And this is something that already Richard Helmholtz made very clear that, yes, uh, don't be surprised if uh, a marriage case is treated in the same way in Poland, in Portugal, and in Scotland uh, in the later Middle Ages. So this church had reach, and it is, um, this is a totally appropriate work, uh, uh, word. It's the globalizer of Western Europe. Um, uh, it gives Western Europe something like um, a common point of reference, um, the law and, of course, also uh, the orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Okay, um, one more thing. Why? Uh, what's the reason for choosing 1215 and 1517 as the bookends for this study? Yeah, um, 1215 is the time when we see this new church law that's coherent and indeed applicable to all of Western Europe. We see it uh, fully in place. Um, we see it formulated by the church lawyers and... Um, we see it disseminated in handbooks on marriage. Um, so uh, it's it's not a law coming from above from some pope that suddenly says, now we do marriage like this. But instead, it is the, the schools that create the tools, um, uh, treatises that are disseminated everywhere and give all uh, the bishops uh, and whoever is responsible the same information about how to treat marriage cases. Um, and this is 1215, uh, since we see that phenomenon uh, coming on. In the past, again, talking about historiography uh, for the longest time, people were always looking for popes and try to find a pope who kind of gave us the marriage law that we uh, observe in late medieval courts. But by now, there is pretty much consensus that uh, popes were not necessary for that process. Uh, the schools did it. And... Um, it was rather that the popes, uh, the schools turned to the popes when they needed them than vice versa. So 1215 is that date. Since, uh, since then, it, it's meaningful to speak about a single uh, theory of marriage in the church, in the Western church. And 1517 is, yes, um, is the beginning of the Reformation. So the beginning of the breakup of this Western church unity. Um, yeah, uh, that's when... Your period begins, and I didn't want to overstep uh, boundaries. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it becomes a very complicated uh, picture. Uh, it's a different story uh, that you need to tell uh, beginning in 1517 with the Reformation and the rise of local churches. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and in 1215, Fourth Lateran, according to this, what, what makes a marriage? How do we define marriage? Yes, um, it's uh, startling uh, from the modern perspective, um, but uh, already medieval lawyers were very um, aware of this startling nature of what constituted marriage according to the new theory of 1215. And that was the uh, sole consensus of the two partners. So you could um, be in the privacy of your bedchamber and whisper um, yeses to each other. And uh, that would constitute the marriage, unless, of course, there was something impeding that uh, mutual consent. Uh, Of course, if you whispered uh, the yes word uh, to your partner and were already married, uh, then this didn't work and this was not valid. 
But if you were not married and there weren't other um, limitations and impediments, as they were called, to your consent, um, you could also not be of the same sex, of course, uh, and uh, exchange consent. It needed to be a man and a woman uh, who were not married, who were not otherwise impeded, for example, by um, yeah, uh, blood relations. Yeah, consanguinity. Um, right. Examples like that. In that case, that marriage was valid and lifelong. So in other words, marriages were often constituted in the absence of what lawyers need, um, what modern marriage needs, um, civil and ecclesiastical, and that is witnesses. Um, some kind of ceremony that makes it public and verifiable. You don't have that in 1215. It's often secret in the absence of witnesses, uh, a big mess, you might say. The focus of those who formulated marriage um, and marriage consent, uh, the way it needed to be done, their focus was very theological. Um, they were uh, very concerned about the, um, uh, the inner consent that someone gave, the the obligation that someone accepted um, in the form of promises. Um, so this was binding before God and therefore also uh, before humans. Uh, and the problem of proof that consent had actually occurred, that was left to, yeah, well, well <laughs> uh, the, yes. the, the theoreticians didn't care about it. No, I mean, and so we have basically exchange of consent, what he said, she said, the only thing that matters, right, which can happen any place. And and then these impediments, which can you might cite later if you're trying to get out of it. But I mean, there's nothing provable about that at all. Right. So this is there's no way that's the end of the story. But you have this bind. I want we want to respect the biblical tradition that says it's only that, but then that's not the end of the story. There are other in the modern parlance stakeholders, right? Um, so what's, tell me what else is happening. What's the rest of this story? Well, it's a, it's a big rest. Um, <laughs> yeah. First of all, it's important often when you read the historiography, um, the historiography has this problem of, and this is our modern problem in general, when we look at uh, the past, we easily fall into um, the habit of thinking in terms of progress, uh, right? So that we think that, well, these were beginnings and, you know, it's a little primitive, but since then we have advanced so much. And so often also in connection with the history of marriage, um, there is this paradigm of progress. And people say, well, back then they didn't have um, a ceremony that was public and therefore uh, uh, it was verifiable with whom you were married, you know, depending on ceremony and probably documentation. Um, uh, and they said these were just beginnings and people were uh, didn't know uh, that they hadn't formulated things right for themselves. Their theory was um, insufficient. But, uh, yeah, it's very clear that this is not the case. Uh, already Hugucho, my favorite lawyer in 1190, uh, he was one of the formulators of uh, the theory of marriage. He said very clearly, yeah, uh, marriage is made um, in the mind of the two partners and uh, the law and the law courts 
they should be involved. That's desirable. But if they are not, tough luck. Uh, so he said it. And, um, and we can see that something about that theory was adequate at the time because it was practiced for more than 300 years. You know, this is something uh, not to be underestimated when a theory is in place and basically uncontested for 300 years. It means uh, it must have worked for people, um, perhaps in ways we don't envision, but it must have worked. Um, no, and, and I mean, much longer than that, even the idea that marriage was just consent, right? That's that's super modern. Um <laughs> But I mean, it's uh, it's uh, my emphasis is not on the fact that consent makes marriage, which is the Western paradigm to the present day, but mm-hmm. it's that it cannot be proven in many cases, yeah. right? Uh, because yeah. it's just between two people who uh, exchange consent in private. Right. And it's it's between them and that that is sufficient. And, you know, God as well, because God's always there. God so, is there, yes. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, God is, is the witness, but uh, that doesn't help us. As long as we are not God. <laughs> um, so there's a whole lot, but but as because this is so difficult to prove, because this can often happen in secret, because um, sometimes it's a benefit to be dishonest about this for the the people involved. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork that happens here. So tell me about this paperwork that you know what you used to to work on for this to work to do for this study. What did you look at? Yeah, well, um, the lawyers, of course, um, when they were confronted with claims of marriage, uh, they needed to gather evidence. Um, And uh, often there was evidence. Many people did uh, get married in front of parents, relatives, uh, a parish priest. Uh, Many people were aware that in order to really nail this down, this marriage, you needed to do more than look into each other's eyes and be make a private party out of it. So uh, many people made sure there were witnesses. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, it was always possible to sabotage uh, a marriage that had been concluded with vit- witnesses by suddenly turning around and claiming that, well, yes, I... Uh, we celebrated this marriage in public with priests, with witnesses. But guess what? I, at that time, was already married uh, to someone. Um, yeah, well, with someone I got married to without witnesses. So um, the so-called pre-contract could be invoked as one way to um, dislodging uh, a marriage and claiming that there had been one earlier impeding this second marriage. So that was pre-contract, was one uh, way of trying to um, get out of a marriage um, in favor of another one. And then, of course, there is the huge uh, theory of impediments um, that is also helping people to get out. And this is something that's still being practiced in the Catholic uh, tradition to the present day, that uh, there is claim of impediment or real impediment to a marriage. If you're a brother and sister, you can't get married. Um, if you're too closely related, you can't get married. Um, and then there are all kinds of um, other impediments that in the later Middle Ages uh, grew something like rampant, you can say. Um, very unexpected uh, is the sexual impediment 
Um, and we do find it in our records of the later Middle Ages that, for example, if your sister was a prostitute in town and had sex with all uh, males uh, of the town, then you had a hard time to find a marriage partner because through the sexual activity of your sister, you were related uh, to uh, the relatives of the sex partners of your sister. Um, and in some cases, we see actually such claims at work. Um, you could claim that you got married to someone you couldn't get married to because uh, you were sexually related to them. Um, or imagine the simpler uh, example of having sex with a woman and then trying to marry her sister. Uh, and you couldn't because you were sexually too closely related. So you can see um, potentially this theory of impediment gave everyone a shot to get out of a marriage um, by claiming um, one of these either blood or sexual relations. They were also spiritual relations. You could also get spiritually related to someone. If, for example, um, yeah, if someone was your godfather, you couldn't get married to him or even to the offspring of the godfather, you couldn't get married. Uh, all of these were relations defined as too close so in court, you could uh, had a lot of um, possibilities uh, to get out of a marriage you didn't want. Um, and that left uh, a lot of documentation because in court, then uh, these cases were treated uh, in legal ways. Um, evidence was weighed. Um, witnesses were called in, long interrogations, due process was followed. Uh, and yeah, that gives us a lot of documentation uh, that I would say historians have traditionally, since Richard Helmholtz, especially since the 1990s, have delved into. That's what made this field of history of marriage uh, such a big field with so many modern historians going into it because uh, everyone has been enamored, especially with the interrogations that have left us with very lively pictures of people and their love life. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. And because sex is hard to to prove too. I, I mean, I have a case where someone claims he had sex with his brother's wife and thus their marriage should be annulled, but no one could prove they had sex. People are like, well, I saw them go into a room together, but you know, what does that mean? It gets really messy, which is cool and fun, right? <laughs> Well, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, it's also surprising how often there are witnesses um, uh, to sexual acts. Uh, so you either wonder about the privacy or you just um, uh, or you wonder about the honesty of the witnesses. I mean, both is possible. Why? Why might someone lie about this? Why would you want to get out of a marriage? Um. I think, I don't know, this is a tricky question. <laughs> I think there are lots of people who want to get out of marriages um, uh, back then and today. Uh, and uh, especially if they have found a new partner they rather want to be with, uh, they uh, try everything to make that old uh, bond disappear. In the Middle Ages, this is not so much a modern issue, but a medieval issue. Uh, it's It's very often that marriages are made with or against parental will. And uh, so also dynastic, dynastic politics uh, come in very, very quickly. Perhaps someone needs to get out of a marriage because otherwise he will be disinherited. 
um, uh, this is uh, this is the dimension most modern people don't think about, which is very present in late medieval marriage cases. That often what we deal with also when it comes to spousal consent is actually not so spousal; it's parental consent, and where it's lacking or where it goes another way. Um, uh, often partners are almost compelled uh, to um, to rethink their marriage and get out of it. Sure. And the the children know. They children know about this. They know what their parents want and they know how to get around it. It's whether or not they can be successful, right? Yes. Um, it's interesting. And this is where we see the church as a globalizer and the way we are using the word. In some ways, the church is super revolutionary in the 12th century with its marriage theory that insists that um, only the spouses, uh, the man and the woman who want to be united in marriage, only they and their will counts. This is totally in the face of uh, normal circumstances in which the will of parents um, counts and the children just have to do what the parents want, especially when there's something to inherit, right? Um, So especially when money is at stake, uh, the will of spouses is clearly, clearly uh, secondary. Um, this can be, it's not demonstrated in my book, but in connection with uh, what uh, the word rape means in medieval times, you see that most clearly um, illustrated. Rape in medieval times means mainly to do something sexual against the will of parents. Um, the What we consider rape is uh, is... It's there, but it's uh, not in the forefront when the word rape is used. Yeah. Again, the Italian context, it often is to carry away. Like, yes, it's yeah. abduction. Uh, yeah. And yeah, what? whose perspective? It's yeah. the perspective mainly of the parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is interesting. Hey, so one of the things that you can see very clearly, especially um, the first chapter of your book, you see that there's a gendered perspective here that the way men and women use the courts is different and the re- the outcome come is different. Do you want to talk to us about that? Um, yes. Uh, it's also in the historiography that has dealt with practice uh, for the longest time. There has been an obsession with the presence of women, especially in marriage cases in the later middle ages, they often bring cases claiming marriage um, um, and trying to force a partner to, uh, to, to acknowledge that there had been consents before sex uh, uh, and, and therefore um, there was a marriage um, in play. And uh, previous historiography has read these cases very literally, um, basically uh, just repeating um, the accusation that women brought claiming that there was marriage while their partner was denying it. And um, also seeing that, indeed, when it comes to marriage claims, there was, at least in northern courts, you can say that, a clear gender bias. Uh, Women brought these cases far more often than men. Um, And uh, through my uh, uh, procedural analysis, I've come to uh, a different explanation of this bias in favor of women or um, this um, disparity in the gender ratio. And that has to do with the need of women to secure certification that they were not married. That's why they had to bring a claim of marriage in order to lose that claim. Um, 
And only once they had lost that claim, they were eligible to bring an alimony suit against the man that they had claimed in marriage. So you see, uh, and this uh, sounds perhaps tedious, but uh, you know that's the business of doing uh, analysis of uh, judicial and legal documentation. Uh, it comes down to procedural matters. And the women were just um, using tactics, uh, the tactics uh, required by the procedural rules that were in place in church courts. And they said, before you can bring an alimony suit, you need to show me that you are not married to the person you bring the alimony suit against. That's that's amazing. That's really yes. cool. Um, it, yeah. it, it shows us also, I mean, we uh, the historiography on women in the Middle Ages and beyond is always looking for agency, right? Um, women where they were just hapless uh, in the hands of patriarchy, uh, clueless and naive or helpless. Uh, and you see in those cases that, uh, no, they were very conscious actors and protagonists, and they knew exactly where their, chan- their chances lay, Um and they were exploiting those opportunities. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Um, I want to make sure our listeners really hear that, right? This is when you think about the medieval period, you might well be, you might be for might well believe that women are just this chattel, right? Passive things that are passed about to whom life happens. And work in the archives just doesn't bear that out. Like these women know what they're doing. And yes, when you have you happen to have um, a strong mother in today's world. You can never imagine that she is just um, hapless and the victim of of male uh, um, intentions. Um, uh, yeah, and something like that you can see often in the documentation from the later Middle Ages. There were, uh, of course, women who were victims, but uh, some women were very strong, like uh, women we also meet in our own time. Yeah, and you also can, <coughs> excuse me, we can also see um, that this works for kind of who we would think of, like the lower classes as well. There, This is not, the law is not, the church law is not just the province of the wealthy. Yes, um, you can see many things. Um, the church is the globalizer, the modernizer, you might say, of late medieval society. Um, this is uh, not only true when it comes to the consent of the spouses, Um but uh, it's also true in the whole construct of marriage as something in which both partners have equal rights. Uh, I would say the whole idea of equal rights um, for women and men has its main breeding ground in the Western tradition in church uh, law of marriage. Uh, there you see it spelled out. And that, of course, is, is very much... Um, against uh, the rules you see in lay society outside of church courts. Uh, That's also in my book towards the end. Um, The big um, gender disparity when it comes to adultery, right? Which for lay society in the later Middle Ages is clearly um, something only women can do. They can commit adultery. Men, uh, well, uh, they are just men, right? And the church courts are the ones who say, this is not true. We have mutual obligations here. Sexual fidelity uh, is not gendered. Um, uh, It's owed to the wife. It's owed to the husband, uh, period, right? Uh, So we see here again um, one of these points where marriage becomes what it is in our Western laws today. Um, 
And that is an institution in which there is equality between the sexes. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, and just not what we not what we think. So earlier you mentioned that there's a, a quite a big difference between what happens in Northern Europe and Southern Europe and the use of these courts. Um, so what what are you seeing, and, and why is this? What what's what do you think is going on? Yes, again, it becomes very procedural, uh, like what we just mentioned with. Uh, with uh, women in, especially in uh, northern churches, going to the church courts in order to uh, be uh, certified as not married and pursue their alimony cases. In the South, uh, you have pre-existing, you must say, to the, um, to the church law of 1215 and the following years, um, a strong notarial culture. So, um, a culture that is based on written contracts. And um, these contracts are written before a notary. And so the notary, given that marriage in many ways is a contract, right? Um, the notary becomes for uh, many people who want to set up a household together, the, uh, the natural uh, focus um, to... To, to determine, uh, yeah, uh, how to set up household. Um, and again, uh, not necessarily it's uh, the spouses who go to the notary. It's uh, more often, you might say, the parents. You know, they, they, they come again into the picture in a notarial culture in particular uh, because it's about setting up households and determining who brings what into the household, especially in terms of a dowry. Um uh, we see that notaries are the natural marriage brokers. Um, I shouldn't say uh, natural. That's uh, not a good word for historians. Uh, they are the historical marriage uh, brokers who are already in place and active when the systematized church law and marriage is just um, gaining ground in the, yeah, around 1215. So in Southern Europe, people go to the notary to... Um, set up a marriage, and uh, their focus is not the consent um, between the spouses, like in church courts. Uh, the focus is on the exchange of the dowry, the, the modalities of how the dowry is getting from um, the bride to the husband, typically. Sometimes also vice versa. It doesn't matter how basically the two partners are pooling their resources in this new household. So uh, notaries are interested in uh, the transfer of property, um, uh, property and valuables um, to set up household. And uh, so in the later Middle Ages, and that's uh, visible in the South far more than in the North, because the North doesn't have a notarial culture to that extent. Uh, it's building very slowly in the North. Um, in the South, uh, uh, people preparing for marriage have options. Uh, they can go to the church court uh, if they want to stress spousal consent, and they can go to the notary if they want to uh, uh, talk about um, dowries and um, property. And we can see by just looking at the numbers uh, that this has the effect in the later Middle Ages, and this is for the next 300 years, until we get to your time in the Reformation, um, 
that people apparently, if they had the option, uh, would go to the notary um, and would only very exceptionally go uh, to uh, a church court. And this is, uh, I would say, against our, again, prejudice when it comes to things medieval. We always see things dominated by the church and assume that people were busy thinking about afterlife rather than this life. And uh, yeah, this is a very strong finding saying this is nonsense. Uh, people thought of marriage as um, basically a transaction that was material. And um, only under certain circumstances, in the South at least, they turned to the church and were ready to treat marriage as a spiritual matter, um, normally for tactical reasons. If you see um, people in the South exceptionally go to the church courts, it's uh, normally because they, whatever happened before the notary is not what they like and they want to um, change it and see that the law of the church can help them to get that accomplished. Nice. That is such a wonderful place to demonstrate just what all of the all the things marriage does, all that it is, like everyone that it involves and um, all the points you we want our listeners to take home. Right. The idea that the, the church is this universal force, but it's not monolithic. It's not the only power. People have agency, like all of these things. You know. Well, yeah, I when I think about our own time, I often think about the church and the operations of the church. Uh, in the way uh, we today have human rights, right? And human rights courts. Uh, we have a big uh, planet and um, we have human rights that in theory apply everywhere, right? Um, uh, in practice, we see what a, what a precarious and ad hoc and um, weak uh, type of law this is. Right. And um, church law, perhaps it's, it's useful to envision it in the same way for the later Middle Ages. It's this instrument like human rights. Everyone loves to invoke it when it's uh, convenient. But when it comes to enforcing it, everyone depends on circumstances and ultimately on the desire on, of people on the ground to actually turn to the courts uh, and use that law. And that's true of human rights today, right? In some cases, uh, it's applied rigorously. If you think about the war in Yugoslavia, all kinds of people ended up before the human rights courts. But so many other wars, uh, nothing happened. Yeah, we'll see what we'll see what's going to happen with this one we've got going on just a little to the east of us <laughs> yes, right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another example. Mm -hmm. um, so returning to the Middle Ages. And perhaps not always in a warlike context, you see church law sitting there as an option that sometimes it's it's used um, um, energetically, but in other times or depending on region, uh, recourse to it was was just minor. Hmm. Well. So, so much to think about. So Wolfgang, I've taken so much of your time. Thank you so much for meeting with me. So I just have one more question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, the, I finished uh, this book. It's a big one, right? Um, then you, you need a, a breather. Um, or perhaps I just ran out of ideas for a new book. But I'm planning to write an article, uh, which uh, could be of interest for people interested in in gender and women's history. Um, uh, there is in the later Middle Ages the phenomenon of um, women 
joining religious communities, especially in the 13th century. And again, historians are still wondering why there was so much focus on women joining religious communities in the 13th century. Why women, not men or less men? Um, and um, there has been, again, a lot of historiography on that subject uh, over the past few decades, especially in the English sphere. Um, and uh, <coughs> this historiography describes the phenomenon very nicely of women joining monasteries under all kinds of conditions and assuming the religious life and the backlash that often happened uh, against those women whose motives for uh, joining um, um, monasteries were, were questioned and challenged. Um, but all that historiography really hasn't found a key to explain why this is happening all across Western Europe. Um, they, uh, they look at one town, they look at another, and uh, I want to find that key. I think I'm very optimistic to have found that key. And it's, again, very mundane and disappointing <laughs> uh, for those who think that spirituality runs the show, because um, what seems to be at stake in all this conflict over women joining religious communities seems to be tax exemption. Uh, these women are joining um, religious communities, often in elaborate schemes to avoid the paying of taxes. And if it's not the women themselves, it's, again, uh, as so often their parents who want them to join these communities in order to park them, their dowry there, avoid the payment of taxes until either the girl gets married or she stays in the monastery and, again, um, then uh, the saving of taxes becomes uh, uh, yeah, the main gain in that entire transaction. So my focus is on showing this in actual documentation that the actors of the 13th century were uh, aware that this is about tax paying more than anything else. Wow, that is not sexy. That is not romantic. That is... Wow. Yeah, that doesn't fill me. Well, with I think it's very romantic. I have to disagree because what's romantic about this is that we see that um, over the distance of so many centuries, we can profoundly understand uh, the people of the 13th century. They were not different. Um, they had, um, I mean, I'm not saying they were not different at all, but they, when they made uh, strategic choices, uh, were making them with, a lot of thought that is similar to how we think, uh, mainly the question being, how do we finance this? <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, what a great place to end this conversation. Once again, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.